Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming on the Canavets podcast today. I'm your host, Max Barron, and this is the first episode of the Canavets podcast. And the Canavets podcast, before we get started, uh, just because since it's the first episode, um, it's a it's a podcast about bridging the gap between veterans and the cannabis industry. It's specifically focused on supporting military veteran entrepreneurship and employment in the cannabis industry as well as taking a deep dive into the science of marijuana and its potential health benefits for disabled veterans. And so since this is a podcast um, about starting a cannabis business, um, I only thought it was fitting to have the first episode be about how to do that. And so today we are joined by a very special guest. Um, his name is Neil Jineja. Is that the pronunciation? Okay. And he's an attorney uh, based in Washington. But he is the managing partner of Gleam Law, which is a law firm with offices across the United States. And it's a law firm that's focused on cannabis law. Um, and they work with uh, cannabis businesses from startups to banking issues even, or mergers, um, pretty much everything <laughs> cannabis law related, um, you know, outside of criminal stuff, I'm guessing. Is that correct, Neil? That's correct. <laughs> so cannabis law, business related law firm, and they have clients um, across the United States and they even have clients in other continents. Um, Neil himself, Neil actually was the first lawyer to represent the first cannabis business in Washington state. Um, he's made appearances on news networks such as CNN. Um, and Neil is has been uh, focused on this field for for quite a while, and so Neil, I just wanted to open it up for you. Thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. And so, Neil, I guess wanted to start by kind of going through your, you know, just your background, how you ended up where you were are today. I think, um, you know, I did my undergrad in business and intellectual intellectual systems technology. It was. Um, a uh, computer degree and a business degree and ended up running an IT department in Vail. And um, somebody uh, dared me to to apply to law school. So yeah, I took the dare. They even paid my fee. Um, it was a friend from high school. And I, uh, I wrote down all the cities and states on a whiteboard and just started crossing them off. LA, too much traffic. Um, you know, Chicago, too cold. And I was left with Seattle and New York. New York. I just didn't have the money. So I was left with Seattle. I looked at a map and applied to the law school closest to downtown and they gave me a scholarship. So packed the bags, <laughs> went to law school. Didn't even know what lawyers did. Um, and uh, yeah, um, after that, um, my first year of law school, I um, applied for internships as we all do. Uh, and I got rejected and I got rejected. I'm just hitting whatever firms coming up on Google, you know, the or, you know, the AM 100s and such. And I couldn't believe this. I, I was doing IT since, you know, the dot-com era. I've never been rejected. So I kind of wallpapered a room with it. I was like, all right, how do we do this? Um, you go to law school, you limit the candidate pool because then you have to be a lawyer. How do we limit the candidate pool more? Patent bar. So I went ahead and did a physics degree at the same time um, and finished that a year after law school. Um, took the patent bar. I might have even taken the patent bar before the state bar. I can't recall. I think it was after. Um, I became a patent attorney. Um, 
I had another company at the time that was paying all my bills. So there was no hurry to practice law. Um, actually helped me um, pay down a lot of my school loans. I had a production lighting company. So doing concert tours and things like that. Um, and then I started doing patent law and I didn't really enjoy it. Um, you know, it's not really about the money. It's what you like doing. And I like doing patents, but not full time. You know, I'd like to do, you know, one a month or less even. Um, so I um, decided to just apply for a job. Um, and I went to my lighting clients as they called me and said, will you do this gig? Will you do this gig? No, 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 no. I, I you know, I really need to follow my career. Well, what's your career? Well, I'm a lawyer. Wait, you're a lawyer? We need a lawyer. And suddenly I had this whole group of clients and I have no idea how to practice law because law school doesn't really teach you. This is for a law school class, right? Because it doesn't teach you shit. Can I say it, that? That's fine. That's fine. I, that's, yeah. that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. Yeah. There's no real application of what they teach you in terms of being able to immediately practice as a lawyer and knowing what you're supposed to know. California is a little bit better. There is some more stuff on your bar that's useful. Um, then Washington, it was a essay writing two and a half days of essay writing when I took it back in the day. Um, but, uh, so, um, I had to hire other lawyers to teach me how to practice law. So I had a law firm before I had a job or experience. Uh, <laughs> so, and then, you know, you got to keep the payroll coming in. So I did door law, which means anything that comes in through the door. Um, I did one probate that sucked. Um, I did one family law case. I'll never, I don't even want a family anymore after that. <laughs> um, so, um, name the firm eventually. I was going to just be an intellectual property firm, uh, just doing trademarks, copyrights, patents. I did a lot of copyright infringement work early on. Um, and I decided, you know, let's not narrow it down to gleam IP. Let's just go gleam law. And then um, as the firm is growing, I'm meeting with other attorneys trying to figure out um, how to get business and, you know, how to grow a firm and how to manage a firm. And uh, somebody tells me, you got to do this cannabis law thing. That was two years before adult use was legal here. And I'm like thinking, no, 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 I'm a patent attorney. I don't want to slum it. But more so, I come from that culture. You know, I grew up smoking. Uh, and it's like, I don't really, I, you know, I want to create a clear division in my life and be a professional. Two years, I wouldn't do it. And one of the businesses I was representing uh, for other items got the first uh, recreational store license. So that morning I'm on CNN, I'm in Time Magazine and Newsweek by name with pictures in front of the store. So I come back the next day and I whiteboard it with the attorneys in my office all right, how do I, how do I take advantage of this? And the bottom line was after a day of uh, brainstorming is, okay, I'm a cannabis law firm. So I got rid of all of those attorneys and, and gathered up cannabis attorneys that had specific skill in it. Um, and then it just went from there. And I mean, at, at our peak, um, I don't know, we had maybe 15 attorneys across a number of states. Um, and we still have a number of offices, um, but we do a lot of things with other law firms in some states and we handle the intellectual property and we handle the cannabis specific and we'll have local attorneys, let's say in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York are some of our newer ones and they'll handle the the boots on the ground for us or the lobbying or what needs to be done. Oh, oh it's quite a path. So it sounds like you never really expected to be in cannabis law. Is that I did my <laughs> I did my damnedest to avoid it. <laughs> You know, though, I do love it, though. Um, yeah. I was doing a lot of these startup conferences um, and they're on Monday evenings. And, you know, I mean, I love entrepreneurs, but uh, 
these these things you just were so waiting for it to be over so you go home and the cannabis events are over weekends and you just the people are just so great that you just want to spend you know all night with them you stay up late drinking or you know uh what have you um and it's just a lot of really intelligent um less stuffed uh shirt kind of people right right yeah definitely a different client base i'm guessing um and so do you do anything at all with in terms of uh, it sounds like you do like startups. Is that correct? You help entrepreneurs get their business started. Is that is that something you do a lot of? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have started well into the you know quadruple digits of businesses um, of all kinds. I mean, they have a chain of waxing salons. We have a couple of porn sites. <laughs> we have um, <laughs> bars and distilleries as well as regular businesses. We represent some large health um health data companies and things of that nature. So we're across the spectrum. We just did a case for Lowe's um, recently. Um, so, I mean, the only type of clients we won't take are based on moral grounds and it's certainly not vice related. Um, uh, but I like to say that, well, we represent businesses. That's the big thing. We don't really represent individuals. I like to say that you come to us to make more money, not <laughs> to get out of jail or right. to... Um, you know, uh, not get deported or to get a divorce or something like that. But, you know, I don't like dealing with the emotional side. I want to help people grow their dreams. Yeah, of course. That's that's fantastic. And the cannabis industry is such a, a growing industry. I mean, it's it's such a great thing to be a part of. Um, and so if someone's trying to start a cannabis business um, and, you know, they, they just have this idea, they want to get one started, but they don't really know you know, what to do, what, what are the different types of, of cannabis businesses that someone can start, right? Like retail cultivation, like what, what are the different avenues that someone can approach this at? So it really depends on the state. It's very state-based with state regulatory bodies. Um, so I can go into some examples, for instance, in Washington, where I'm at, there's producers, processors, and retailers are the main licenses. And then there's also a transport license and a research license in California it breaks up a little bit differently. Um, you have micro licenses, for instance, which allow, uh, vertical integration, um, Oregon adds a wholesale, a wholesaler license. Um, so, and I believe California is broken up as well between manufacturing and processing, um, so it really depends on whether you want to grow as in terms of being a farmer, or you want to take that biomass and turn it into final products or intermediate products uh, through distillation, extraction, um, or make edibles, things of that nature, make, um, you know, smokables. I think we have a client making suppositories, oddly enough. Um, and uh, or do you want to deal with the consumer as a dispensary or retailer? The the terminology started to become retailer as opposed to dispensary, um, you know, and there may be wholesalers in some states it just varies by state and how they've structured their laws. OK, OK. So, yes, yeah, so sounds like there's lots of different different ways. Um, so during like the I guess the the planning process, right, like if you're thinking about you know, where you want to take your cannabis business, you want to start one, you have an idea, you know, of what type you think you want to get into retail, for example, what are the, what are the first steps? What are the big things that entrepreneurs, small businesses should be thinking about during this pre-formation and planning phase? Uh, well, you're definitely going to want a business entity. And even before you get to that, 
there's going to usually be more than one person involved. And a lot of law firms, this one included, generate a lot of billable hours on partnership or member or shareholder disputes. So it's very important. God, we had a case where it was like a law school exam where there was a contract written on a napkin at a bar. It even had like a drink ring in it. Um, and, and, and yeah, that got litigated. Um, but, uh, you, you want to make sure the deal with the other partners, investors, members is, is understood and in writing. And when you do this, you're not going to create a partnership or joint venture. Most likely you're going to create a business entity at the state level and federal level. Well, federal tax designation. So an LLC is the most common at the state level. Um, sometimes you'll want to use a corporation. It really is going to depend on protection, personal assets, how involved people are, um, tax liabilities, if I didn't already mention that. Um, and so we tend to go LLC for a lot of clients in the state just because it's the easiest for unsophisticated clients to operate and it runs in the background and you don't have to do, depending on the state, um, you can minimize or even negate uh, annual meetings and minutes and uh, things of that nature. Now, at the federal level, you go to the IRS and you tell them how you want to be treated. And that can be as a disregarded entity, meaning it's basically just money on your personal tax return or as an S-corp, which is a simple, uh, same results, but it's a separate tax return or um, a C-corp, which is double taxed. It's a corporation like an S-corp. Um, these are the most common ones. Uh, C-corp has benefits, though especially for dispensaries or retailers due to this tax code called 280 subsection E, 280E. Um, and it's a pretty funny backstory. Basically, a guy in, I believe it was Florida, was uh, selling a mass amounts of cocaine and um, pharmaceuticals and things of that nature. And he filed his taxes and deducted the cost of the submarine, importing it, you know, smuggling <laughs> it in, things of that nature. The IRS audited him and they fought it out and he won. <laughs> so wow. they added in 280E and said, if you're dealing illegally in a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 drug, you can't deduct business expenses. Now, uh, there was a case fought in California, if memory serves. Um, I think it was Harborside um, that did it, but I'm not, don't quote me on, well, I guess you have to quote me, I'm on recording. But um, <laughs> uh, they fought this and they were able to carve out a deduction for cost of goods sold. So that means... The cost of the cocaine and submarine are deductible, but your street team and guns aren't <laughs> if you okay. handle it in that way. So yeah. what this means is you can actually have a higher tax liability than your profits are, which isn't constitutional, but it's the result. Um, so a C-Corp would protect your personal assets if you owe more than you made. Mm. And, and would that be the same for an LLC as well? Or is it that's just for the C-Corp? Well, you can take an LLC in the state and then go to the IRS and be treated as a C-Corp. In a lot of ways, it's the worst of both worlds, but it fits for a lot of these entities. So it's a really kind of unique hybrid that does work for dispensaries, retailer models. Interesting. So it sounds very uh, technical in terms of the the IRS side of it, the filing side of it for, for taxes and, and whatnot. So I think it sounds to me that getting a lawyer early on um, during the, the initial process, it sounds like that would be a good idea. Is that, I mean, obviously, you know, you're a little biased here maybe because yeah. you're a lawyer in this industry, but you know, I, I doesn't sound like a, you know, some, someone who's off the street could, would know about these things. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it. You don't want just any old attorney either. You want one that knows that state's cannabis laws as they're moving. And they move. It's a very fluid body of law. So, I mean, I was in um, the Capitol today working on a bill. I mean, these are just, it's, it's nonstop changing between the regulatory bodies and uh, the legislature in each state. So you want somebody that has experience and knows if it's a good deal or not based on previous experience if you're buying into it. And some states you have to buy the license. You can't apply for it. Um, oh, a nonprofit also makes sense for entities, some entities, um, but not often. Um, so yeah, I mean, you definitely want, you know, what do you, what are the four things you normally need with a business? A lawyer, a banker, an IT guy, and a, an accountant. Those are the four you know, uh, pillars of starting a business. Right. And and some law firms, uh, maybe even yours included, do they offer uh, services that would encompass all four of those? Or do you, would you have to go to separate entities for, for each one? Definitely separate. Well, IT, I don't even know if you really need that for a business, some businesses, just because so much is in the cloud. Um, so there's an antiquity and antiquated view um, as far as that goes, but certainly you want experts in their field for each one. So you want a CPA that knows cannabis law and understands the um, the weirdness of federal taxes as well as the state tax issues and how to structure it appropriately. And we won't sign off on tax advice. Uh, we want their CPA to understand their risk profile. Um, and you definitely need a banker. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, okay, cool. Um, well, what what sort of like I guess if you're let's say you're looking to start maybe a a retail or a small level cultivation I know that's going to be different here for each but do you have like a general idea of how much money someone should be raising how much capital should they have available for you know uh, different types of cannabis businesses you know is that something that that you would think is you can even give a number number for. Um, you know, sometimes in some states you can get things started pretty inexpensively, but it really is going to, I mean, scale up. Maybe you can start a tiny little home grow or a little bit bigger than a home grow, a few thousand square feet of canopy. Um, each state counts it a little differently. Um, for instance, Oregon counts canopy of flowering plants, but most other states count total plant acreage or square footage. Um, so, I mean, you may be able to get started for 30, 50 grand, um, or, I mean, licenses in Arizona are going for $10 million in some areas. Um, and we have public companies doing this. So it's going to be expensive, but it's also possible you find a, one of these small shops and you you purchase it on terms. So you pay them through profits or through revenue. So theoretically, you can step in pretty inexpensively if you can find the right deal. But if you're starting from the ground up and filing for your own license... It's going to get expensive quick. You know, I mean, I don't think you'd be able to really get going for less than, you know, 100 grand plus. Yeah. Have you noticed that people who are trying to raise capital, your, your, maybe some clients that you've dealt with before, whatever um, things you're aware of, um, having trouble acquiring that capital from outside sources, considering the the nature of, of cannabis? Has that ever been an issue? That is an incredible issue. Uh, early farms in Washington were doing hard money loans at 25% interest. They are not wow. in business anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, wow. most uh, FDIC insured banks won't give loans. Small business SBA loans aren't available. Um, from the veteran standpoint, I know there's loans available for things like opening a GNC or a franchise. That's not going to fly with the federal government. Um, so really, you're you're stuck with 
really loan sharky people at high interest rate or um, equity financing uh, an investor, but you better have something to bring to the table, a unique location for a dispensary um, a product, you know, just because you grow the best weed. Every farmer says that. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's uh, it's really difficult. And it's it's a hyper capitalized industry. It's a hyper in terms of like how much money's already been poured in. It's a hyper competitive industry. So there's a lot of losers. I mean, we're seeing this in California, Washington, Oregon, all the older states, uh, Colorado, even Michigan's accelerating. They're they're crashing. Price per gram is collapsing, um, which is hurting the dispensary. So unless you have some sort of government uh, oligopoly or monopoly on some sort of aspect of it, limited licensure state or something like that, people are barely making it right now. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I know it's it's been described as a boom. Uh, the cannabis gold rush. Some people have described it like, described it like that. Do you see that as dwindling? Is that kind of what you see right now? Is kind of the gold rush kind of era is is on its last heels? Would you say maybe? Um, it varies by state. New York and New Jersey are coming up strong right now, but they're early. So eventually, the the market will stabilize. People will get better. And growing larger quantities cheaper, which will crash the price and wipe out anybody who didn't get efficient. Um, and we're seeing that on the West Coast. Um, but there's certainly winners um, and there's consolidation happening and such. So it ends up being uh, a regular business eventually. You know, with all the, the competitors that enter early, well, there's going to be a lot of fallout. And yeah, I think we're already there on the West Coast in Colorado. And Michigan had an accelerated path. So Michigan's kind of feeling it. Um but other states are are very insular and doing decent. Uh, Maine, for instance, um, Vermont's just getting really going right now. Uh, Florida's limited licensure, so anybody who has one is doing amazing because you're controlling supply. Yeah, interesting. But it does sound like you do need someone who you need to get into business with people who are going to be on your side, who are going to agree with you. Um, you know, so in your experience, what kind of business partners? do you kind of think are important, you know, whether it be people with business backgrounds, people with cannabis backgrounds? I mean, we're looking at, you know, when comprising, comprising the, the board of directors um, or whatever, what have you, um, what, what are some important experiences that you think should be brought to the board, to the chief officers and, and whatnot? A uh, real business experience would be great. Um, we've seen a lot of legacy, uh, we call it legacy or old guard. Uh, a lot of people that were doing very well on black market didn't, I had a client that didn't know what payroll taxes are um, because they never paid them. You know, you're paying in right. weed or cash. Um, but definitely people that have real world business experience are good. People that understand the product is really good, but you know, it's not required if as long as they understand products in general and, you know, can then understand the industry. Um, smaller chops we've seen, uh, smaller businesses we've seen, um, a money man and then a person that's actively participating to the point where, you know, they do know the industry. So those are usually the smallest um, groups. Um, but it's it's a marriage. In a lot of ways, it's worse than a marriage. Um, so you really got to make sure it's the right group or right people you're working with um and the the terms of the deal or the terms of the the agreement and the contracts and the business are extremely specific mm. um because it, it's a wild ride 
Right. You know, with the market and a set of laws that are moving so quickly, <laughs> you could end up in a very different type of business than you thought you were. And I've seen that with people who didn't realize that this product was going to be their moneymaker. And now they're doing something completely different in cannabis. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, cool. Well, I guess I'd like to now um, talk more about the actual formation, right? So you've moved out of the planning phase got your investors, you've got your board, you've got your team, got your lawyer, banker, accountant, um, and you're ready to move forward. Um, so in terms of the formation, right? Like how, how, what does that look like? And you can use Washington as an example. Um, like what is, is like filing with the secretary of state? I mean, what, what does that process physically look like? Um, I mean, it can be done online pretty quickly as far as forming the entity in most states. And I can't think of a state that has to require a paper copy. I think I've mailed some into Sacramento or our company, our law firm has. Um, so I don't know why that wasn't done online. That's interesting. Nevada's online, you know, Delaware, et cetera. Um, so you do the secretary of state and then you need to, so with an LLC, for instance, when you form it, you also want to do an operating agreement. If it's a corporation, you want to do bylaws and a shareholder agreement, maybe a buy-sell agreement. It can vary what governing documents you're going to use. Um, you know, with, uh, and this is the same in basically all states. Um, we follow, most most follow the the Delaware model to some regard because Delaware has the, and I'm sure you guys know this, uh, the Court of Chancery of the Chancery Court. So it's a very, very well-developed, fast-tracked um, uh, body uh, uh, court that um, makes it so most corporations you see that are publicly traded are filed in Delaware. That's just the way it works. Uh, so that usually helps set the model rules or they follow the model rules. I mean, every state will vary a little bit. For instance, Washington, if you don't specify it in your operating agreement from an LLC, every member gets one vote as opposed to voting by their, their share of the company, you know, their equity, um, which can create some really bad results if you don't know each state's intricacies. Um, so you definitely want a lawyer in that state, um, or at least part there, uh, you know, as well as, I mean, practicing law without a license for somebody who's um, doing it outside, you know, for a different state can be an issue. Um, so you uh, draft those documents and then the business license allows you to practice in every state or practice as a business. And every state can be a little different on what order these things go in based on the cannabis laws. Uh, so for instance, in this state, the business license kicks off the cannabis license and then it goes over to our regulatory body, the LCB Liquor and Cannabis Board, OLCC as an Oregon Liquor uh cannabis commission um california just changed a little bit ago to the dcc department of cannabis um control um so you know each body is gonna have its own regulations and is specific to that um and then you go to the irs and get an ein uh, an employment identification number uh, sometimes called a tin um again uh, identification number and that starts the federal process and that's a same day activity Okay. Um, and any state that you're getting campus license in is not just going to give it to you by signing up. You're going to have to go through a whole process, most likely including background checks, financial checks, hidden ownership, um, fingerprinting. Uh, it's pretty extensive. And sometimes your spouses as well. Um, it can vary. Um, Washington is the only state left with a residency requirement that's actually followed. So you have to be a resident of Washington for six months before you can get our license. 
Is that is that standard uh, for a lot of LLCs, uh, background checks like that, or is that just unique to the cannabis industry? It's unique to the cannabis industry. You see it in liquor as well. Sometimes you see it in tobacco. You see it in gambling um, and gaming. Uh, so it's usually very specific to um, highly regulated areas. I would assume you'd see it in nuclear power since that's highly regulated. Um yeah, I, would, I, would I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so any highly highly regulated um, business is going to have to do some sort of um, jump through higher set hoops. What does that timeline look like? You know, let's say for in Washington or when I know it's probably very state specific, but what do you have a, an idea of typically like, you know, from filing to opening the doors? How long does that typically take in your experience? So Washington doesn't really have an open application process. We had a one-month period that you could apply. We limit our retail stores to a certain number based on, well, supposed to be based on demographics. Instead, I think uh, Washington in particular privatized liquor. We had 554 liquor stores. So when cannabis got legal, they just said 554. There was I don't think there was any research done. Right. Um, and then we've opened it up twice more um, for certain types of retail applications, but not producer processors and producers in this state or cultivators. Um, so you have to buy it. Um, so you buy the license from someone and they, it's uh, called an assumption. You're assuming the license. And in that regard, target time is three months um, to get it from filing to ownership. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it can vary, though, in other states uh, to shorter to much, much longer. Some can take years. Right. Yeah, well, what do you what do you counsel um, entrepreneurs, startups um, and how to manage during that that time period where they're not making any money? What do you what do you suggest for them? Um, I suggest they have enough cash to survive it, taking a lot longer than they expected as well as enough cash to make it through, let's say, a bad harvest because they're just starting up at a large facility and you never know. You could get powdery mildew or something like that. I think there's some sort of, there's some new disease that's been running through the grows up here um, that I just heard about that's been wiping out entire uh, harvests. Um, wasn't It wasn't the usual stuff I've heard of. It's not like spider mites or anything like that. Um, it was some, it's a virus of some sort. Um, so definitely you need to have deep pockets or you may go broke before you open the doors. Not necessarily deep, but be able to make it a good amount of time longer than you expect. Right. Okay. Um, and so I, I know you talked on that, the operating agreement for the LLCs and, and whatnot. Uh, you said that that was an extremely important part. Um, I guess, you know, is that a huge part of what you do is, is crafting those agreements? I mean, uh, how how important are those? I mean, what 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 can they do um, to benefit the the owners of of the companies? Well, I mean, you want to know, for instance, how are you going to um, how are you going to handle disagreements in the company? Um, because if you have two partners and they disagree, that's the end of the company, right? Um, so this can dictate how that's handled. Um, it can dictate what happens if somebody wants to leave or if somebody dies or what have you. Um, it's basically the the rules of the game for an LLC or a corporation, you know, in the terms of bylaws and shareholder agreements. Uh, otherwise, I've got a friend that's been in litigation for years trying to sell a massive um, software app and one person is resisting. 
and there's 20 people owning it and they their documents just require unanimous you know where you can uh, unanimous approval or unanimous consent where you can do things um where you can have drag along or tag along right so you can drag them into the sale and not allow them to hold it up um so there's it, it, there's a lot you could do with it it's an it's an open book where you get to write the rules to a new board game so you can get pretty creative once you've moved out of that formation stage right now you're actually you've opened up your business um what do you in your experience what have you found um you know as important for uh, entrepreneurs startups to be to be mindful of during these infant stages of their company well, I mean, you're still going to need a lawyer for the lease, um, for contracts, employment um, items you really want to get right. I mean, we've seen a lot of really bad employment results. Um, people people taking swings at each other. People are harassing each other. Those kind of things are pretty common. So lawyers needed there. When you're bringing in investments needed there, there may be some securities and exchange commission or local state uh, requirements, filing requirements, things of that nature um and contracts uh but you know it's best to let you know unless you have enough people it's best to let lawyers handle that and then you handle operating your business and becoming competitive keeping costs down keeping product quality up or down if you can get the price down however it works and so you can i'm guessing you can retain a lawyer from the very beginning right and have him work on you with you throughout this whole process is that kind of how it's done yeah, and some lawyers will use their knowledge of the industry. For instance, I'll ask people exactly what type of grow method they're using or extraction method um, and understand if it works. For instance, um, I mentioned Oregon. Uh, their canopy count is based on flowering plants, not um, not total plants, in which case, I think I might change that. i got to double check. But um, in which case, the sea and green method makes the most sense. Have massive amounts of clones and only go into flowering each one at a time so you're constantly cycling and harvesting where most other states that's not really the the goal so you know you've got to take an energy considerations depending on where you're at for instance california i mean palm springs is the big area but it's i mean it's pretty hot out there um oh yeah but there's definitely a lot of people playing there because of i believe it must be power costs well i know the uh, the local government there is really pro cannabis, um, which is really handy. Um, so yeah, it always varies whether you do an outdoor, if it's indoor, it better be goddamn good because your cost could be three times higher, but you can, you can grow in the winter. So it really is important if a lawyer is going to help you with that, that they have the experience and maybe not as a business advisor, but at least catch things and understand your business enough to know, you know, if you had to stand a chance of success given the industry as a meter. And so in your in your firm, for example, do you guys have different attorneys that have, I guess, different um, knowledge on, you know, different aspects of the cannabis business? Like one attorney might be more um, knowledgeable about a certain area and you're able to, you know, lean on him for that and have him advise the client on that area. Is that what you guys do? Do you guys ever split it up like that? Um, no, I think I would be the one that really is, you know, deals with most of the clients. I answer the phone when, yeah. uh, when any attorney is requested. Um, so I probably have the most knowledge of it. You know, I've gone and looked at a lot of facilities, but, you know, as far as practice areas, yeah, we have a specific banking attorney, intellectual property, litigation team, um, M&A, that kind of thing. So that okay. has to be broken up because you can't, we're not country lawyers, you know, you have to <laughs> really focus in right. on one right. area to be very good at it. And 
there's not many people that can do litigation and transactional well. Mm-hmm. Um, all the litigators do write good contracts if you can force them to. <laughs> Interesting. That's good to know. Um, well, I guess like once you've, is, is there ever any like compliance issues that you deal with with cannabis companies while they're, uh, you know, out operating? I mean, I know obviously, you know, storing money, right. Might be something difficult because of the, you know, federally illegal, um, is so in terms of state compliance, federal compliance, while the business is now up and running, do you, what have, what have you noticed there? Uh, we have a banking attorney that had 19 years in house counsel that created one of the largest cannabis banking programs. So he, uh, we represent credit unions to create cannabis banking programs. Um, if you're at, let's say, Wells Fargo or US Bank, uh, fuck both of those places. Um, <laughs> you can quote me on that. Um, but they'll, yeah. Wells Fargo will go so far as a, look and see if you've got a mortgage. They'll call your home mortgage if they know you're involved in cannabis. And so they'll call the mortgage, they'll call the note. And now you wow. buy, you have 30 days to pay off the mortgage and get another one. Um, so most states have credit unions. And as a background, uh, when Washington and Colorado, the first two states to legalize, uh, pass their initiatives, uh, the coal memo, the second coal memo came out under Obama and it basically said that they're going to lower, they didn't legalize it, didn't decriminalize it, but it said we're going to lower the prioritization of enforcement for cannabis so long as they follow these eight priorities. Um, not involved, in, you know, there's a robust regulatory system. It's not being fed to people under 21. It's not involved in organized crime, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, FinCEN guidelines came out with the same eight priorities. So that's financial crimes and investigation, you know, I don't know, uh, enforcement, whatever. Um, and uh, FinCEN guidelines are still valid. The Cole memo got rescinded by uh, Trump. So now we, we're just flat out illegal as a cannabis industry. Um, well, we always were. Um, but FinCEN guidelines are still in place. So that means FDIC insured banks, as well as credit unions, can develop cannabis banking programs. But they haven't bothered. There's only two I'm aware of offhand, um, East West Bank, and I think it's Valley in New York. Um, Otherwise, it's a great option for credit unions each state because, I mean, they quadruple in asset size when they deal with this. And they charge you monthly accounts and they charge you cash fees. And they it's just it's it, it they just just rains money for credit unions as long as they're willing to take the the superficial risk of. I don't know, going to jail for life. So what's what do you think stopping these these big banks then from from getting involved? Is it just like the stigma or or what do you I'm pretty sure it's a stigma. I mean, it's a huge compliance thing under the the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, BSA. It, well, Bank Secrecy Act is the exact opposite of what it is. It basically has the banks requiring them to understand their clients so that they know the source of the money. Um, and report that if there's any issues. And there's uh, SAR, suspicious activity reports you have to file if somebody's depositing $10,000 or more in cash, or if it's below that, um, if it's a structured transaction, they have to report it. If there's um, IRS form 8700s, I think they are, for when you receive more than $10,000 in cash. So it's a huge compliance issue. Um, 
where you're basically looking through every transaction of a cannabis company. The bank is looking through every transaction and making sure everything's on the up and up, as well as making sure all of their licenses are good, as well as make sure they're not involved in black market. So it's a major hurdle. And in the end, it's just not worth it for the big banks, is my guess, for the drop in the bucket versus their you know $100 billion in assets. Um there's also the issue of um, we've been trying to pass safe banking at uh, the federal level for God, it must be 10 years. I went and lobbied for it five years ago and myself in the Capitol. And that takes away the potential criminal liabilities for banks, which means otherwise the CEO could potentially go to jail. And why would a, a CEO of a major bank take that risk, even if it's never happened? You know, banks by nature are supposed to be conservative, although Silicon the Silicon Bank really is arguing that point against me. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is a that is a mess down there. Um, wow. Well, yeah, that's that's too bad because um, you know, it sounds like they they could, but they they won't. That's that's unfortunate. Um, do you see any, I guess, any headway being made on the federal government in terms of legislation, legal on the legal side of things? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think we might end up with 50 legal states with no federal legalization at this rate. Yeah. 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 Uh, we can't even get bad. the FDA to, to properly regulate CBD for Christ's sake. Right. right. Um, Which is just not even. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, well, Neil, I guess I've kind of gone through the pre-formation, the formation, the post-formation. I guess I kind of wanted to ask you before we wrap everything up, did you have any like kind of key takeaways that you think uh, you want to relay to to entrepreneurs who are getting involved? I know this is, you know, hopefully veterans are going to be listening to this, but, you know, what are the, I think, overarching key points that you want to convey to potential entrepreneurs? Um, I mean, the money, the investment for actual cannabis plant touching businesses is drying up. Um you know, we've seen a big tank on the the public stocks and nobody really wants to invest. Um, so unless you really know the business, it's a tough business. Um, but if you know what you're getting into, it's a lot of fun. Um, it really is. I wouldn't rather be anywhere else. Um, but there's also the potential of making, uh, of becoming successful doing picks and shovels during the gold mines, uh, the gold rushes. So ancillary businesses can do really well, uh, types of brands. Uh, packaging companies, um, accountants and lawyers, um, right. anything that, you know, software, POS systems, those have been doing really well for some people or creating a whole new product category um, would be great. Um, and I tell people to 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 lock onto their core competencies when they, they want to go into cannabis. It's not, oh, I'm going to go be a farmer. It's, oh, I'm a graphic designer. I'm going to go do graphics for the cannabis industry um, and branding. And, you know, that seems to make more sense than trying to learn something new um, because farming is its own thing. And now it's cannabis farming and now you better get a sales team. And, you know, there's a million things to do with it. So, so work with the skill set you already have. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Stay in your lane and kind of, kind of build on that. That's, that's interesting. Cool. Well, Neil, I, I don't have any more uh, questions. I, you know, really appreciate you taking the time uh, come on the podcast and talk to, talk to me about this and, Hopefully uh, there's some veterans out there that take a listen to this and, um, you know, use this as a springboard to jump into the industry. So Neil, thank you so much for your time.
Absolutely. And if anybody wants to get a hold of me, you know, gleamlaw.com, or if you can't remember that, assholeattorney.com or assholelawyer.com will go to me as well. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Neil. Thank you.